0: Well, good morning and welcome. We're glad you were able to make it, because maybe like you, uh, I was shocked when I tried to brake for the first time this morning, and the car did not stop, so <laughs> that was exciting. Um, winter is on its way, I suppose, um, but we're not going to worry about that today, because we're warm in here, and it is whatever season we want, because there's no windows. <laughs> Um, but welcome. Uh, as those of you who have been attending, you know that we've been going through First uh, John, very similar to what we did on the Gospel According to John this summer. Um, and it's been quite intriguing, at least for me, hopefully for you, and we'll continue down that path to maybe spark some interest and excitement as we uh, keep looking and diving more into it. Um, and as we were doing with the Gospel of John, we'd also like to you know, just encourage you to read it, uh, hopefully every week. It's a really short read. It's about 20 minutes. I think is all it takes. Mm-hmm. Um, and by then, if you read it every week, you can read it multiple times a week, you'll have it memorized, and then you'll be smarter than we are. So uh, we look forward to that. Um, and if they're... Are we doing... We're opening it up, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if anyone... I mean, if you've read it recently, or if you had any insights on it and something stood out to you, uh just like we did before we'd like to open it up and if you want to offer any you know suggestions questions insights uh anything that intrigued you uh now's a great time if you want to share that with us and with others in the room yes mother <laughs> Yeah, Bob, sin that leads to death or doesn't lead to death? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question.
1: Gail asked immediately when I read this every time, and I'm with you, uh, when I read through this every time, I hit this line that says, uh, pray for each other, and and then he makes this statement. He said, I'm not saying pray about a sin that leads to death. And he just sort of dismisses it. He said, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something else here. We're not getting there today, but we will get there. And what's really fun is that if if we go through this sort of the way we are thoughtfully putting together the themes and the ideas by the time you get to that statement I can't say I can tell you what that sin is that would be disingenuous but you'll have a much better idea of what category is he talking about and uh, and we'll get there
0: well I think a little bit of what we hit on today we'll touch on that yeah a little, a little bit maybe not directly but I think it will
1: but at now I would say every time I read through, when I hit that, it's more of a welcome statement to say, okay, I know sort of categorically what you're referring to. Is that fair? To, yeah.
0: But yes, it does read really weird at first. <laughs> and that's true of a lot of verses in
1: First. John. Have you noticed that when you read through First John? If, if you go in as the devotional grab bag and just take a favorite verse here or there, Uh, You can get in trouble really fast (laughs) uh, with John. It's really meant to be read start to finish so that you catch these themes all coming together. Anybody else? Patty says, uh, when you read through John over and over, you see these themes repeated over and over again, um, which could come across as one of two ways. One would be the fatherly figure saying, How many times do I have to tell you? <laughs> or more likely, uh, that's a style of teaching, in which, remember, this letter probably would not be read by every single recipient. Instead, it would be read aloud in a setting like this, in which it was meant to be retained, thought of, sort of the words washing over you, so to speak. And, uh, and so it's written in a style that is easily memorable um, but, and poetic. So you kind of feel like you're listening to a poetic sermon.
0: is you, you want to know what's going on. Like, why did he write this to these people? What's happening in the background? Why do they keep needing to be told this? What are they struggling with? What are they succeeding at? Um, yeah, there's clearly a, a backstory here that's happening. Uh, very similar to all of Paul's letters. You know, he addresses something, and John doesn't hit it on the head, but he's clearly got an overarching theme happening. Yeah, so it makes you wonder. <laughs> Court. Yeah, so Court, to sum that up, I would say so there's um, he's trying to really protect them from heresy. Um, this could have been early years of Gnosticism, um, although maybe not as predominant yet, but it could have been one thing that they were trying to approach. And then the guy's name I can never remember from Second John. What's his name? Di- Dionysus. I can't remember his name. Diotrephes. Diotrephes, oh my goodness. Um, he's clearly sticking out as he's causing problems. Um, he has some sort of mindset that's causing him to think, I'm in charge. And it's screwing with his um, with his understanding of the gospel. Um, but interestingly, though, the things that I've come across where they, where they spend most of their time saying John's trying to combat heresy, John doesn't actually give you a dogma. He doesn't give you rhetoric. He doesn't give you foundational truths, aside from since the beginning you've been told to love one another. Um, and if you don't proclaim Jesus as God, you've got some issues. I mean, those are the main two things he hits on. And you're kind of like, you know, like if you're wondering what's happening in the church, like Tracy is, you'd be in the back like, well, what about, you know, this? What about that? And he just doesn't go there. He calls you back to since the beginning and you go back and you start reading all that again. So, yeah, he's got an interesting point of view.
1: And that's really a quick link into today's passage is this idea that you get the sense that John is combating some type of, use the word heresy, some type of false teaching Uh, And later, by later we mean 100 years, 200 years later, we know there's development of these groups that are heretical. What's interesting is that long before you get to those people in history, you have John dropping in with a statement of here's what you can take to the bank as absolutely true, which is a preparation for the church is about to go into a time when there'd be all these wild ideas about what you can know and what not know. And one of those groups were called the Gnostics. That word, gnosis It's where we get the word knowledge. And so they were called Gnostics because they said, if you have the secret knowledge of, you know, reality, then you can break through these archons, these leaders, these layers, and, and become one with the great being of the entire universe. But the key there is to have this secret knowledge. Now, a hundred years before that, John says, you realize there are six things that you can absolutely know. Take these to the bank. And that's how the book ends, is by saying, here's what you can know. And do you remember what those six things are? I'll put them on the screen so you can catch these. Uh, John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's number one. Second, I write these things so that you may know that he hears us, those who ask according to his will. Look at verse 15. And if we know that he hears us, we know that we have received what we ask of him. And then we skip down to, is it 18? 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning because uh, the one who's born of God protects him. Jesus protects him and the evil one can't touch him. And then verse 19, we know, this is number five, we know that we are from God, even though the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And then verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that, and here's the big da-da-da, so that we may know him. There's the target who is true or real. We are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God, eternal life. And then he ends with this little statement, keep yourself from anything fake. And that's how John, isn't that beautiful? So, as we read through John, regardless of which passage we end up in, this is your target. Here are the six things. I don't have six fingers on one hand, like the Princess Bride, <laughs> the Six Finger Man. There are six things that you can absolutely, absolutely know.
0: And then last week we tried to briefly do a quick recap of Genesis one through four. And if it won't, hasn't become obvious yet, it should be. Um, I think we see a giant link between First John and Genesis one through four. Uh, not, and that's, that's not only the the only links you're going to find, but there just seems to be a predominant theme that keeps continuing, that calls you back to these garden scenes, to this Cain and Abel story, to God's purpose in making all things, and then what happened. Um, and so as you read through John, it's been really helpful for me, at least, um, to start seeing these connections, to see these hyperlinks back to Genesis, um, And to understand, well, what was happening there? And then what is John talking about? Why does he keep saying this in the beginning? Why does he keep referring back to, is he talking about Jesus' ministry? Is he talking about the creation? Is he talking about both? What is he doing here? And it's really fun to spend some time uh, meditating on that and and digging into that. And hopefully that helps bring some things out um, as we work through this.
1: Yeah, and that's where we ended up last week. You remember at the end was with this image of what it's like to walk in the light. So we went through 1 John uh, chapters 1 and 2. And we had this image of what it was like in the garden to walk in the light of God with him. And we ended with the passage that we'll actually start with today, which is what it means to actually abide in him, to abide in the light. And what's that like to be in such a relationship that when, when the Lord is revealed, there will be no shame at his coming. And so you remember how we left off there. And that's what takes us back to Genesis 1 through 4. Maybe just a quick reminder of what's in Genesis 1-4 through because this is going to come up as we read you're just going to see it jump off the page Um, so a 30 second recap recap, Um,
0: so you enter the scene you have chaos, death, chaotic waters you have this pre-existing nothingness of darkness and death and then God comes in and he speaks life he speaks order, he speaks light into the known world He structures it. He makes it good. He goes through his days, and at the end of it, he says, That's Genesis 1. That's Genesis 1, and he says, This is very good. Everything he made, you know, lovely. And then you get into the garden scene, or get into Genesis 2. God makes man in his own image, singular. Then he finds something not good. He needs a partner. He needs a helpmate. He needs an Azer. And then he cuts this man in half, and he makes two of them out of one. Because the two, then when they reunite as one, fulfill the ultimate image of the Godhead by having a loving relationship again that brings them back, which is the exact same relationship that God was seeking between man and himself, which is why then you get to chapter 3, you see the destruction of this relationship. Where God enters back into the place and comes and finds them and they hide from him. Their relationship has been broken dramatically. And then they start accusing each other, blaming each other. And so the foundational image we're meant to bear, not a physical image necessarily, but very much so a relationship image, um, is just thrown out the window. And then you get into Genesis 4 and you're like, oh, well, the next generation, they'll be better. They'll, they'll do well. And then you, you see Abel and you're like, good job, Abel. We're, we're moving in the right direction. And then Cain comes in and just continues. Not only does he shatter the relationship by murdering his brother, but he elevates it more so. And then you continue on that theme through the rest of get into all the way through Genesis 11. And you just see the world is just on a downward spiral of destruction. Um, and, and John is going to really riff on all of this. <laughs> so you're going to hear
1: all of that through the passage we read, which starts in 1 John two twenty-eight, uh, which will be a recap of what we read last week. Now, if you're like me, and some of you even asked about this last week, uh, when Tim said, God cut Adam in half and made Adam and Eve, you're going to go, what? I thought he just took a rib. And we don't have time today to get into all the nuances of this, uh, but realize that the Old Testament scripture there just says that God took a side of uh, Adam. And so there are some theologians who look at this and say, you're meant to conceptually This isn't a statement about what surgical procedure did Adam actually go through, you know, when he was taken in. You're meant to understand that God took a person who was one and alone and made that person into two but not alone. This is the beauty of oneness and relationship. And so what you're meant to get there is a picture in the garden of there being many people who are one, not just with each other but with With God, So with that idea in mind, uh, we come back into 1 John, where he left us off last week saying, and now little children, abide in him. And let's just read our passage for today. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us Is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who the children of God are, or who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how can or how does god's love abide in him little children let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth by this we shall know that we are in the truth and reassure our heart before him for whenever our heart condemns us god is greater than our heart he knows everything beloved if our heart does not condemn us we have confidence before god and whatever we ask we receive from him
0: So I think the first thing that kind of jumps out at you is you notice, hopefully you saw the word abide occurred quite a few times. Um, Most noticeably, it was at the beginning of this section and at the end. Um, And and you need to what does that mean? What does it mean to abide? Um, At least. And John, this is one of those words John loves. Yeah, he uses it all over the place. And, And you look, I mean, you do a search of
1: scripture, you'll see abide shows up from time to time, and the word abide just means to stay or remain. This is not a religious word. No. It just Means doesn't move, <laughs> and it can be used in the sense of where be, you live.
0: It Can be an action, like a some, yeah, something you're doing. Uh, it occurs hundreds of times, yeah. um, so it's not unique. Uh, and it's word choice. No, but John
1: uh, takes it and he starts giving it all these layers of meaning, <laughs> and assigning it to things. So the word of God can abide and remain. You know, it can stay. Uh, that evil can remain. You know, and stay. That there are all these different. Different connotations.
0: Well, and then the one, at least that came to mind, was when we were in John, John 15:10. He says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then if you remember, what's the only commandment you're given in John? So love one another. And so John's still riffing off the same idea of loving one another and keeping to that commandment as like pivotal uh, among all others, seemingly.
1: And when, So when you run into the word abide here in John, this is just a thought hook or an illustration to help you know, what, why, how is John using this word here? Um, uh, because the word can take on more of a religious or a spiritual type meaning, and that's not how John's using this. He's, he's saying here, you get a chance to be with and remain with the creator of the universe. Here's the illustration. Uh, imagine we were out at the airport, and, uh, and you're staying there with a five-year-old. Some of you have actually done this before, but those of us who have raised kids, you're staying there with your five-year-old right there before TSA, and it's time to get on an airplane and go on a trip somewhere, somewhere exciting. You know. And uh, imagine that that were me, and I was standing there in front of TSA, and I turned to my child, who was five years old at the time, and I handed my, my child a boarding pass and said, here's your boarding pass, and here's a cool picture ID that I gave you, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to to go on through TSA, and you're gonna talk to the nice people there. Anybody that has a badge, you can talk to, and they're gonna tell you what to do, and you do exactly what they say, because these are trustworthy people, and and they'll tell you how to get through security, and then once you're through the security, turn to the right. Do you remember your right hand? Yeah, this is the right hand. You're gonna turn to the right, and you're gonna go down this really long hall, and there's all these kind of things you're gonna see that I don't want you to be tempted by, so don't go into those stores. you are going to put little uh, games and books and toys outside to get you to go. In. Don't go in those stores. And walk right past McDonald's. Do not stop there. Do not eat anything <laughs> at McDonald's. And there will be all these other shops that, that serve uh, beverages that are not for uh, someone of your age. And so do not go into those places. And just keep walking all the way down. You remember we learned our letters and our numbers? I want you to go to the letter C. And the number nine, look for those two. When they're together, go there. And then I want you to wait there. And there'll be a lot of nice people around you. And, uh, but don't talk to them. These are strangers. You, you sit there until you hear somebody who has a uniform on say that it's time to get on the airplane. And when they do, you'll line up and you'll take your boarding pass and your, uh, your, your ID. And you'll go up and you'll give it to the nice person who will scan it and let you on to the airplane. Now you remember that your letters and your numbers, you're going to go to a a the time they're going to flip them, you know, backwards. You're going to a row 12 and a seat number C. And you're going to have to find that and there'll be a little sign up top that uh, they'll show you where to sit. And I want you to go and I want you to sit there. And when you sit down there and look next to you, guess who's going to be there? It's going to be me. <laughs> And I'll be there, and you and me, we're going to go on this great trip together. Now, what would you think of me if I were that kind of father? Okay. That's, good th- that's good thinking.
0: You'd be calling no, like a, a, yeah, <laughs> Office of
1: Child Protection Services to say, what kind of parent is it? No, you'd think that's ridiculous, you know, to do something like that. Uh, instead, you would expect me, standing in front of TSA, to skip that whole story, which took way too long to, to tell, because I can say in three words everything I just said, and what would I say? It would be something like, you stay with me. Now think about how we approach our life with Christ. So many times we approach it in this way of thinking that Christ just gave us this instruction booklet and we're supposed to follow these rules and just you know, only listen to people that are trustworthy and avoid temptations as you go through life. And then eventually at the end, if you get everything just right, then with your ticket, you know, your uh, baptism, your identity in Christ, then you get to board the plane and sit down and God says, and I'll be there you know for you and that's how we tend to think of following Christ. John throws all of that out and he says, "No, this is exactly what you would expect of the creator of the universe who says, reaching down his hand, "You stay with me." And that if you understand that, and as we read this passage, it will make perfect sense when he says, "And now little children, abide in him. You stay with him so that when he appears, you may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And that's our first link back to
0: Genesis, what is that, 2 Genesis, and 3. Genesis 3, yeah. So when God comes back into the garden after their interaction with the serpent, uh, the first thing they do is they hide in shame. Um, and so John's riffing off the complete inverse of that. That's not what we're called to do. Because if you're in right relationship, if you're practicing righteousness, then you're, ex- you're excited when God enters the room. You're looking forward to his presence, not fleeing from it. Yeah. In fact I think of it as
1: sort of the opposite, like if you are daily staying with him, then on the day he is revealed we'll be just like any other day in terms of being in his presence. Much more glorious. But that gets to this next point where in John three one he uh he says it's almost this woe statement. He uses the term see But think of that as the word look written in capital letters with an exclamation point after it. You ever get those kind of texts? You know, if it said, look at this. That's what he says here. Look at what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called, and this is a key point for today, we should be called children of God. Now, why would he say children of God? What are the other options?
0: Uh, Well, if you're continuing on your Genesis idea, uh, there's only two options. You only have two lineages to choose from. <clears throat> and we're given that in Genesis 3.15 when God's talking to the serpent and he's, cursing, he's giving him the, his condemnation. And he says, I will make enemies of you, the serpent, and the woman, Eve, and of your offspring and of her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So from the beginning, God's clearly defining. You have two, two lineages that you're going to see in humanity. You're going to see those who are of the woman. Um, and the first one you see is Abel. Abel's following in the path of the woman the woman referring to those who are following God's commandments, those who are following God's intentions and purposes for humanity and then the very first one you see is you see Cain. Cain becomes the first descendant of the serpent um, not like the serpent, not you know, of the bloodline but very much of the intentions, the motives, the actions the purposes uh, to do exactly what the serpent did which is to crush right relationships and so you get these two possibilities of what kind of children you can become and so, yeah, John, and, and here, he, not only does he say you are children of God, but he puts emphasis on you really are. Don't doubt this. Whoever those deceivers are, the guy whose name who starts with a D that I can never say, <laughs> if they're telling you you're not children of God, don't listen to that, because you are. And that's a foundation, not just the fact of who your father is, but the fact that you have this relationship that was intended from the beginning, that it's coming in its fulfillment and its fullness, not fully revealed yet, but very much working towards, and that's a hope that we have.
1: Yeah, and this, Gail, this is one of those first hints you get, is what does this mean when we get over to this other passage that says there's a sin that leads to death? Uh, This is your first hint as to what category of sin he's talking about, because, and this is really a key point for today's reading, is there are really only, as Tim said, two types of children you can be. And that goes all the way back to this promise God made from the beginning that there's going to be this huge fight between the seed or the children of the serpent and the children of God. And if you, if you know that started from the beginning, you're going to see this through all of Scripture, this, this uh, constant story or motif, this struggle between those who are children of the serpent and the children of God. The example that came to my mind was Matthew 13. You remember Jesus tells the parable about the weeds and the wheat and how he's trying to explain the kingdom of God. And the short version of the story is um, Jesus says the meaning of the parable is Jesus is like, and he actually says Jesus is the one who sows good seed in the world. And uh, at the same time, the enemy, who he says is the devil, plants weeds and the weeds and the wheat are growing up together. But in that parable, this is one of the few parables where Jesus tells us what he actually means. By the parable, and in the parable it says, "The wheat are the sons of the kingdom, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one." And so, if you if you know that connects back to Genesis, then you see that this theme it just starts showing up in lots of other places. And John's expecting when you're reading this book or hearing it, uh, hearing the letter read, that when he says you are children of God, he's taking you all the way back here to the beginning to say. When God said to Eve, there will be this fight between your children and his children, you're supposed to see yourself as you're in that line of people that came from Eve who are the people who were made in God's image. You are God's children. And John stands back and goes, whoa, what kind of love does God have for us that we would be called children of God?
0: And then, if you remember from John, Jesus Jesus says this very emphatically, uh, John 8, when he's talking to the Jews, you are of your father the devil, for you want to do the desires of your father, because he was a murderer from the beginning, There's a hyperlink for you, yeah. uh, and does not stand, which I thought that was kind of, kind of comical, when you're talking about a serpent not standing, I thought that was funny. And why is that? He, <laughs> he, he didn't have any legs. Yeah. Um, but he says, and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he's a liar and the father of lies. And you get a connotation from this that, you know, it's not like uh, he learned this from somewhere. He, he gave birth to this idea of lie and anti-truth. And the first lie, this is a good place to
1: talk about the or the, one of the first lies that we see is that lie that he tells Eve. Yeah. Uh, which is, this is, it was fun for us to run into You remember the story there, Eve is standing in front of the trees and the serpent says, did God say you can't eat the fruit? And she goes, oh no, we can eat the fruit from any tree except from this one tree. We are not allowed to eat lest we die. And you remember the serpent said, you will not surely die. God knows that if you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then there's the first first light. Did you see the reverse of that in our reading today? Where that's exactly what Eve had. Her eyes were already opened. She had access to all of, uh, all of God as his image. And John takes you back to that and says, we live our lives in such a way that we will not shrink from shame when he comes back. And then he says, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet made, been made known. But we know that when he appears, catch this, we will be like him because our eyes will be open and we will see him as he is. Do you see how John is giving you the reverse of Eve's temptation? And what we learn from that is that, in this case anyway, uh, the, the real lie, the real temptation, is that she was being tempted to reach for something that she already had. She was, the temptation was to grab somewhere else <laughs> something that she already had, which was to be in the presence of God. And then the question we haven't gotten to the bottom of yet is, is that true of every temptation? Is that really the heart of every temptation? Is the temptation to reach for something that you already have? Uh,
0: yeah. You messed with my head. It wasn't, it wasn't fair. It was late and I was tired. And then you messed with my head. So... Yeah, the other day you made the statement that the idea was that every temptation um, is trying to convince you of, that you want something that you actually already have. And so I kind of took that home and I chewed on that a little bit and it bothered me for a while. Um, and, I, and at least the thoughts I've had so far, I, I, can't, I don't see a hole in that as of yet. Because, um, I mean, I guess take that in your own, in your own life and, and test it. Uh, think of the things that tempt you or that pull you. And is it really offering you something that you don't already have? And again, you have to sort of, you got to get rid of some of this materialistic mindset that we're just shoved in our throats in this culture we live in and think of it more from a biblical perspective. You know, when you talk about rich and poor, the majority of the time we're not talking about money in the scriptures. We're talking about what you have, what you possess, and um, in, in abiding in Jesus. And so take the same non-materialistic approach to what you're being tempted with, what you're being offered, and you start to realize, I already have those things. Which is the heart of the
1: the word that John uses for sin. There's two words we'll talk about here, but the word that he uses that, where every time you see that word sin pop up is the word hamartio, which uh, some of you know means to miss the mark. That's all that word means. It's not again not a religious word. It just means that you are aiming at something and you missed it. <laughs> you, you missed the real deal. And that starts to make sense that that's what sin is uh, not so much a moral failure or it is a moral failure, but the real heart of it is that you miss the real thing. Which is why John ends by saying, keep yourself from the fake (laughs) idols. Sin is missing out on what you already already have. And that's what he leads into next there in uh, 3, starting in verse 4. This idea of practicing sin and how that's, this other word that he uses, lawlessness.
0: So uh the word "lawlessness," I think, is kind of interesting. Um, if you, you're, I think, your first thought is usually it means there's no law, which, if you think about that, um, that doesn't work either. Uh, because uh, think of the the world in which we live in. We very much have structures, we have uh, patterns, we have governments that are built around laws that are not incoherent with God's law. So you now have uh, people and entities that are that are setting up structures of functions that they're abiding by. So, and, but make this very personal. When you sin, oftentimes we're convinced that oh well, I did it and I made an excuse. Well, that sort of gets to the heart of the matter. But what's really happening is you're 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 committing actions in accordance with the laws that you have set up for yourself, with the structures that you have set up. Because there's certain there's certain sins that I have a propensity to, but there's other ones that I don't. Because I have some sort of misaligned uh, set of rules that I want to follow, where that one's okay, but that one's not. And this is exactly what Eve is being tempted with in the garden. The serpent's telling her, you can recreate the world in your own image by your own laws. You can set up your own standards. And this is exactly what you see throughout the biblical story. It's not, yes, they're not abiding by God's laws, but they're very much setting up their own. And so you come across these verses in scripture, um, Titus 2.14. It says, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, eager for good deeds. He's not even talking about sin. The word sin's not even in there. What he's talking about is breaking down people's paradigms and structures of their own way of seeing the world, their own rationale for why they do the things they do, much more so above a morality law, but very much you have to deconstruct your worldview so you can actually see what Jesus is trying to accomplish. Um, and this is when I got into my, my metaphor that helped me.
1: Well, that's right, because he goes on to say, uh, you know, whoever has, has practices sin, in other words, does sin, is of the devil. The devil's been sinning from the beginning. And so you get the idea of John saying, don't follow the devil. Don't follow his rules. Uh, but that seems to contradict. And anybody that's read from the beginning would say, wait a minute. This whole book started with him saying, anyone who says he's without sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. So how do you reconcile that where John has said I have to confess my sin and now he's saying that anyone who practices sin is
0: of the devil. Sure, and then he keeps on confusing you because he says if you're born of God, then you can't sin. You're like, I don't what? <laughs> yeah, so if I'm a <laughs> children go of together. God, yeah, if I'm and again that children motif. I so, can't sin. so the the simple analogy that I came up with was an Olympic athlete training for the Olympics. Um, They're purposely, intentionally committing time, energy, and resources to accomplish a predetermined goal. They have something in mind that's years down the line that they want to do, and so, uh, but they're clearly getting ready for it now. They're in the gym, you know, five days a week, or they're on the ski slopes, whatever they're doing. They have intention for why they're working towards that goal. But does that mean that they don't occasionally have a candy bar cheat day? I mean, I'm sure they do. And does that cheat help them in their goal? No. Um, but it doesn't de- change what their ultimate goal is. It may mean they've got to work a little harder the next day to burn it off, but their, their main goal is that they're working to be an Olympic athlete. And so take that and use it in this idea of practicing sin. If your main goal is to be a person against God, then you're not a child of God. But if your main primary goal, the energy, the time, and resources you put in every day is to achieve right relationship with God, then will you still sin? Sure. But Romans eight one, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All of a sudden, that little candy bar cheat doesn't knock you off the path. It lets God's grace abound even more. And so you can keep going towards that ultimate predetermined goal that you have, and I know one of the struggles and we talked about this a long time ago was: is every day are you walking a thin line between saved not saved save not saved and that is not the message of the biblical authors at all you don't see that there it's what is your goal what is your intention what is your energy being put towards um, and you can achieve it you can practice sin make that your ultimate goal or you can practice righteousness and make that your ultimate goal
1: Yeah. So the idea here is that, again, we're talking about children of God versus children of the serpent. And there's one of the ways you can tell the difference, and that is whether or not there's practicing sin. Yeah, no, that's well said. And so as you read through, John, uh, as Dr. Heffington it says, is, we're not treating this as a checklist. It's understanding this is a life with God. You're one of his kids. And to treat it as a checklist is to become more pharisaical, you know, in terms of how you're going to look at whether or not uh, you are a child or whether you're not. Can I borrow it since I, I said Dr. Heffington on purpose? Uh, Dr. Heffington and I are physicians. We practice medicine. It's what we do. Uh, I'm assuming some of you have gone to the medicine cabinet and have on your own, maybe using Google or something, and taken a medicine out and taken that medicine. When you take that medicine, are you practicing medicine? We would say no, not under the laws of the state of Alaska. My my point there is this illustration works for me and it's terrible because it makes me the bad guy. But uh, what John is saying, there's a difference between those who practice sin, that is their goal, and then those who will mess up from time to time. And you remember what he said at first, if you are a child of God, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's this cleansing effect when you are a child of God, which we're going to have to hurry to the end part yeah, of this to say, what that. is the big thing that distinguishes, <laughs> the big thing that distinguishes the children of God from the children of the devil?
0: Well, he says it should be obvious. But then, but bear in mind that in Matthew 13, they appear, they appear to look the same. So what are, what are we looking for? What is the distinction? Um, and then, yeah, we're going to we'll have to skip Cain. We'll come to, back to that because that's too good to skip but yeah. um, on a different day. But you go to 3.16 and 17, and that's when you get this quick little summary of what it looks like. Um, I don't have it in front of me. if you want to read that one. Yeah, so this is John 3.16. Not John 3.16, 1 John
1: 3.16. It sounds a lot like John 3.16. By this, we know what love is, that he laid down his life, for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers, but if anyone has the goods of the world and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or deed, but or excuse me with word or talk, but in deed and in truth
0: so I think you're you're meant to look at Jesus and you're supposed to emulate that, but then you know your first emphatic thought is so I'm supposed to die a horrible death on a cross it's like, no. That's not, that's not what John's getting at. John's whole point is that Jesus gave up his, his entire, you know, his suitcase, his everything, all that he had, not just a moment in time, but it was the divine, you know, heavenly Father came into sinful flesh, into like the lowest state you could come. A, a Jew, um, not highly result, you know, recognized at the time, a poor carpenter who had no money, raised in the dirt, and he took on this role of humility his entire lifetime. Um, he didn't seek his own. He always continually sought the better relationship of others. Um, always. And so in the backdrop of Eve and Cain, you see that they stand as a complete opposite of what we're supposed to pursue. We're supposed to pursue right relationships. We're supposed to seek out fractured Um, you know intimacies we have with others and fix them help work through them we're supposed to seek the betterment of others Um, and the thing that I guess comes to mind for me is that you know Jesus intentionally went out to help other people despite the negative consequences it would bring upon him Um, when he raised Lazarus from the dead that was his pinnacle moment where the Jews said this guy's got to die but Jesus did it knowing what was going to happen to him and we're called to that same train of thought so I'm supposed to seek the betterment of my brother even if it means detriment to me because in doing so something much greater than this material world something positive is happening and that's when you go to the Sermon on the Mount you go to 1 Corinthians 13 and you see what a life in Jesus is supposed to look like Um, and, and at first glance it's like my nature doesn't want that my urges, my desires, my wants, my needs they don't coincide with that But as you practice those things, again, practicing righteousness doesn't mean that you want to be righteous. There's a difference between your actions and your mental state. I think uh, C.S. Lewis spends time on this when he talks about even if you don't love someone, act like you do, and eventually you probably will love them. So I think you can use that same sort of simplicity to Christian walk. When you first are converted, you still may not like your enemy. It's difficult. But as you choose to show loving action to them, uh, you're transformed and you know the transforming of your mind it's not instant it comes based on the input you give yourself so whether you input in your mind i love this person because jesus died for them no matter what or i still hate them you're going to see what kind of child you are whether you're of the woman or you're of the snake
1: yeah and maybe that's let's let that be our link to next week because next week this will take us into a whole section where he talks about love and what it means to love love our brothers. This is actually a fun passage. There's a little pearl in here I'm going to say for next week uh, in, uh, in the passage that we just read. But let's pause there for the last 30 seconds or a minute. Uh, what stands out to you from today's reading or any of these kind of thoughts that John has taken us back to throughout all of scripture? Did anything stand out to you? or Any questions? Thanks. Yeah, Tony just reminds us that that's from the beginning. There's always been this temptation to uh, separate (laughs) uh, righteousness from, I mean, the real deal righteousness, and then to go after some artificial version of that. That's our second bell, isn't it? All right, that's a great one to end on. Tony, can we end on your your word there? And then that'll be our transition to next week, which will take us through probably chapter four. We'll just start here and go through four. Uh, Let's prepare now for worship. Thank you.